Hello, and welcome to Cage Club. Two fans, 76 movies, one cage. This is episode 72. Joe, from 2013, directed by David Gordon Green. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Joey Lewandowski, and with us today we have our number one recurring guest, Tobin Addington, who you just heard on the previous episode. Hello again, Tobin. Hey guys, good to be here. This movie is a very different experience from the last <laughs> movie we were talking about, The Frozen Ground, where that movie was very difficult to get through, and this one arguably is Cage's best movie in, I don't know, I guess you could probably argue ever, possibly, right? I don't want to set the stakes too high here, but it's, it's, a, it's a great movie. It would be in the conversation, for sure, of his top movies, I think. Or at least, yeah, the movies that I have enjoyed the most, that have, that have, that have impacted me the most. I don't know, it's hard to say, because as you guys have done, have gone through, he's, he has so many powerful performances and so many great movies, so it's hard to say. But yeah, I would definitely put it up there. He's been great in bad movies, and he's been great in great movies. And this is one of those, he's really great in, the, in a really great movie. So it's just really excited to get here especially after frozen ground you know i mean there has never been really a more stark contrast between films and like the art of filmmaking you know <laughs> and it's just really funny how we get this right after that so this movie comes in the midst of cages straight to dvd era and it was in theaters and i did see it in theaters with a friend he and i were the only two in the entire theater it only made about $360,000 in the U.S., and I don't think it was released overseas. It is, I guess, in a way, the same way that, like, Seeking Justice and Stolen were almost straight-to-DVD. This is, again, almost straight-to-DVD, but it's of such a different caliber, such a different quality, that it's hard to give that designation to this film. I wonder what it would have been like if the on-demand market had been more what it is today, two and a half years later. I, maybe maybe I, this is I'm retconning this too much. Maybe in 2013 it was as, as strong as it is today. But I feel like this is the sort of movie that, with the right sort of marketing and the right push, could have been you know could be a, 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 a you know a video on demand hit. I think, don't you think? Yeah, I definitely would agree with that. I mean, I don't understand how this movie didn't get attention. I mean, consider for a minute the director, David Gordon Green. You know, We don't typically mention every director at the top of the show, but I think he deserves it because of his body of work. Yeah. He sort of started out as this indie darling and morphed into sort of a mainstream comedy guy, and, and he tried to maybe work his way back from that a little bit. I, I saw his a movie he made right before this called Prince Avalanche, and, and I saw that on Netflix. Netflix, and I don't think it got distribution in theaters either, but it, it just didn't make sense because he crafted a great film. He has appeal, and it's just strange that at this moment, this movie just wasn't uh, marketed at all. So this movie is listed on IMDb as 2013. Its release date is actually April 2014. Okay. So I'm not sure. It might have bounced around a little bit, mm. but I was looking it up because it came out around-ish the same time, within a year of mud. And I think that yeah. Mud, in a lot of ways, is similar to this movie. You have this established, terrific actor. You have Ty Sheridan in both movies, who is going to be a superstar, I, I would hope. Or maybe not a superstar, but just somebody to watch, for sure. Maybe in a couple of years we'll be doing, like, Thai Club. Who knows? Mud made $21 million in theaters. Mm -hmm. And so to have that movie, it feels like, in terms of production value, in terms of quality, in terms of everything, similar to this... For that to make $21 million and this to barely crack theaters, it's just kind of a weird little disconnect. 
Yeah, yeah, they're both these sort of like small rural southern gothic tales about growing up and being a man in that transition of boyhood to manhood as well. So yeah, I, I, it kind of got a mud vibe from this a little bit. And yeah, I mean, it's maybe you're right. Maybe there just wasn't room enough for both, or there was too much similarity, or we were just in the middle of the reconnaissance, you know. And <laughs> Cage hasn't sort of crawled his way back yet. Yeah, and mud, mud, as Jeff Nichols movies tend to be, is a little bit more mythic in a way. Uh, and I'm not sure that that accounts for all of its sort of making so much more money than this movie. But this is a little bit avant-garde is too strong a word. But this is an art house movie for sure. This is not going to follow a lot of the sort of traditional <laughs> beats or the or, or ways of shooting or ways of casting or, or any of that. It's possible that uh, Mud took the oxygen out of the you know out of the room for the you know for this movie. And I have to say too, as someone who writes a lot of you know, smallish rural scripts, people are really gun shy about that and. This is partly why, because a great movie like Joe comes out, and nobody goes to see it except except Joey. I'm really glad that I went to see it, and I would go see all your small small rural movies as well. So just keep <laughs> keep writing them. You have an audience of at least one. No, um, thanks. But I was talking. I think I, I don't know if avant garde. Again, I'm not sure. I feel like avant garde yeah, kind I, of has a negative connotation. Yeah. yeah. But art house is definitely the right yeah, word. I right. think because Mike and I were talking last night. And we were saying how this kind of feels a little bit like Upstream Color. It kind of feels a little bit like Terrence Malick. Like, this movie I don't think was ever going to necessarily be a huge hit. Like, I don't think that's why he made it. Yeah. The first half hour especially, it's like this terrific score. I mean, throughout the movie, but like the first, like the beginning part is like so stylized. And there's people in conversations over video of other scenes happening. Mm-hmm. And it's just like this whole like dreamy quality and it's like exciting and sort of. It, it, I was saying to Mike, it's got like a life to it that other Cage movies really haven't had since like Bad Lieutenant. That there is excitement here. Like it feels like these are real people. It feels like we've entered a real world. It feels like we're just there with it. And like this is whole. Like it's it's just a beautiful film. Yeah, I mean, I think it's got a realness to it for sure. Like, I mean, part of the reason it feels that way is because those day laborers were real day laborers. They were not actors, mm-hmm. you know, like they just went down and picked up a bunch of guys and, you know, you're in the movie now. And, you know, you know, the guy who plays the father in this, the drunk, he was a homeless actor in Austin, Texas, you know, sort of the director ran into him and cast him in this film that anyone probably would have killed for this role. You know, this is like an Oscar worthy role. <laughs> it's, it's insane. But I kept sort of thinking, of this as like docu-natural in a way like he the director just has a great way of capturing chatter and life and you know like everyone just feels so comfortable in front of the camera as if it's not even there and and he gets that in his early work too like i went and did like a mini marathon and watched his first three films and like it's present in those as well he just feels on top of his form and this movie just you know he's a director with style and it comes through and, it, and it's elevating this it's not a very plotty you know twisty turny sort of story you know it's very basic and he's very good at taking small sort of basic stuff and and stretching it out to like a feature length like it's kind of amazing that i would watch those workers teach ty sheridan how to chop down trees for probably hours (laughs) like it's such a boring sort of like if you describe the scene it sounds boring but just the way that it's shot like mike just said the way that like it captures a slice of real life it's so fascinating they're not really like i guess they're acting in that sort of sense that they're on camera, that this is for a movie. 
But he's just like, hey, this is what we do. This is how we do it. Just go ahead and do it. Yeah, and I think Cage has, like, no trouble at all easing into that as well, right? Like, I I lost him in this role, you know? It's like one of those roles where, like, almost like leaving Las Vegas in a way where he just so inhabited this character that felt like a local to me (laughs) to a degree, you know? Like, he just seemed like another guy off the street in a lot of ways. I do want to mention on a real sad note that the guy who plays G-Dog, the homeless guy that David Gordon Green found, died in Austin like two months after filming stopped. So the movie is dedicated to his memory. So, I mean, he's this great actor, if you want to call him an actor, who gives this terrific performance and then doesn't even live to see it. Like, that's it's a tragic, heartbreaking story. Yeah, and this is where I have to confess that I am in the tank for David Gordon Green or for sort of one half of, of David Gordon Green's career. He sort of works in, in two modes, and I completely understand why. Like, he, he does these and, and broke out with these small, observational, quiet movies. And I don't mean small in a pejorative sense. I, I mean just the, the it's about a character or a group of characters or a, and, and, a, and a sort of slice of American life that we don't usually see represented on film. To be able to keep making those films, he makes, you know, the stone comedies or the Pineapple Express movies. I'm just less drawn to that. I have less interest in that. But, um, you know, he, he was coming into focus as a filmmaker as I was, you know, in film school. And so from All the Real Girls to Snow Angels to Undertow, these these sorts of Southern quiet observational movies, blue collar movies just, you know, hit me in the in the gut. This is definitely one of the best. And as uh, Mike's saying, in no small part because of Cage, who sort of very, I don't even want to say quietly, but sort of unassumingly melts into this movie that, that centers around him in just beautiful ways. You know, the scene where he goes and helps the guy cut up the deer inside inside his kitchen. Oh, great. Which is great. Or then he get, when he gets shot and he just lights a cigarette is the next thing he does and then <laughs> drives home and patches himself up. And, you know, he, he just goes about doing these things that, that in some sense you see and you think, oh my gosh, why is he doing this? And then he just sort of melts into the movie that the... The, the movie around him it feels so real and and he sort of blends into that I, I just think it's a great match of, of performance and film I guess you could say it's like a stretch in a way for an actor of his caliber right like I just seem other actors would make a bigger deal out of it though like it just seems uh-huh. for him to be just effortless in a way that I don't know like Sean Penn might kind of mug up this a little bit or I, I don't I don't I don't know for sure but it's just it's cool that we can get Ghost Rider <laughs> you know and then take him perfectly serious as Joe here again you know it's just great to see that this is still in him that another director sees it in him I mean I'm imagining what if David Gordon Green directed The Frozen Ground you know like home that would be the oh. movie it, would, it should have been right these yeah. are sort of the revelations I have watching Joe and, and I'm loving it it's making my mind go what I kind of like about this movie and I think it's something that Tobin just touched on in a way and I think it's something that Mike was talking about earlier is that there's not really a plot like it just seems like David Gordon Green and Cage are just going around town and just seeing what the townsfolk are up to like they're just going to a convenience store and just shooting a scene there they're going to that scene where they're cutting up the deer they're just going to places and I'm sure that they're all scripted I think they're all actors Although, I'm not 100% sure. The only reason is because I was looking up everybody else in this movie to look for Cage connections, and nobody else in this movie has ever been in anything else with Cage, and not even things that, like, press junkets. Like, there's, there's shows that pretty much show up on every similarity or the comparison thing that I look up, that, like, you know, they're all on Entertainment Tonight or whatever. None of these people have been on anything. 
So I feel like maybe it's possible that David Gordon Green just sort of found this small town, you know, made a movie with a bunch of people. I don't know. It just, whatever he did, though, I think it's it's terrific. And one of the best casting decisions he made was casting Ty Sheridan as, as the boy, who is, in everything I've seen him in, amazing and has such a such a realism to him. And if you watch, the, I watched some of the behind-the-scenes stuff after I finished wiping my eyes after finishing the movie. Cage was talking about how he, you know, was was even improvising with Cage and coming up with some some great lines. Uh, there's a line where Ty Sheridan has come to Nicholas Cage and, and is telling him he's going to go back and kill his father and says, that, or, you know, I can fight just as well as you. I'm going to, I can go, I'll pop him right in the eye. And that's a line that he came up, the kid came up with on the fly. And it's just so perfect for that moment and for that character. And every one of their scenes, I mean, the movie's, the movie's great. The movie is, is maybe capital G great, but it's great all the way through. But the scenes between Ty and Cage are really fantastic. Yeah. And he's got to carry like half this film and it's not even called you know gary or whatever his name is right like it's called joe but like he's got some of the toughest stuff because he's got those scenes with his dad like right off the bat there's that scene where he's talking to his dad and as soon as he's done his dad just socks him right in the head you know and then that's the whole thing he just like he you see he can stand up to like it's not that his dad's stronger than him it's that it's his dad right like he doesn't want to beat him up and and he gets that across i'm like dude you're stronger you know but he's got like this wisdom to him and he's so yeah. young and you just see like you know i hope i hope he can sort of stay on the right track because i just you feel like you're watching someone who like a you know like a leo or something like a dicaprio right like yes. someone you know is going to show up down the line and like do like some extraordinary stuff like i was I, I haven't seen him in a lot of things you know and i was very impressed he has another great scene with his with his father is that opening shot and then there's the one later on where his father is too drunk to stand up and he's showing him how to how to break dance from sitting on the ground and it is such a funny great clearly clearly improvised moment between the two of them that's sort of extended right like this is some movies might drop that in for just a, a bump out of the scene and this they they linger on it for a little bit and what it, it does such a great thing of showing you that as terrible and bleak and troubled as their life is together that it's still a life you know there still are moments where mm-hmm. they where they really connect where they really laugh it, it's the sort of thing that makes this movie such so much more complex so much deeper than something like <laughs> and I hate to keep bringing it up but frozen ground you know for that movie everything that was bleak was just bleak to know it just bleak 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 no life and no reality behind it and this movie is the complete opposite is interested in in the reality and the sort of the other side of these of these bleak troubled relationships you know and i, I just think that that that's something that david gordon green does really well and that is in no 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 movie better than this one i think another thing that he does really well and i think it's a combination between him and the writer is they have a lot of lines and a lot of moments and a lot of interactions that feel like they could mean something, but they never really go into it. Like how Cage is afraid of that one dog, and Ty Sheridan's afraid of Cage's dog, and like everybody's afraid of some other dog, or there's like a line like, nobody wants these trees, these trees are weak. And like they all sort of apply to like everything and nothing at the same time. And I think like it's just like this beautiful ambiguity. You can sort of make the movie mean whatever you want it to mean. Like, at its core, it's a mentor movie between an old man and a young boy. But, like, you can sort of figure out how you want to interpret that story in probably 10 or 15 different ways. 
I think sort of the lack of quote unquote like story for sake of stuff that happens, right? Like we've been talking about, like things just sort of unfold here. It allows to sort of infuse a level of subtext that you can take the time to lay groundwork for that you couldn't necessarily do otherwise in a commercial driven film. One thing they do really well is the use of dogs. You know, at one point I just couldn't ignore it anymore because they're barking at me and stuff. <laughs> and, you know, men are dogs, right? And like that is a big thing here is like men afraid of other men standing up to them you know standing their ground the one guy Scarface right like he you know he always gets slapped around he comes at cage with the gun and like you know it's all about like being the alpha dog and even to the degree where I noticed that the dad's jacket says G-Dog on it you know and I think those are intentional and they're mm-hmm. moments that pay off because they're taking their time they're, they're crafting this they're not just making it I just want to say that's not true I love dogs just not that dog that dog's an asshole <laughs> <laughs> like that's madness when he joe like i'm trying to get behind joe right because yeah. he's looking out for the guy but he goes home and gets his fucking dog and sicks it on the dog at the whorehouse and like uh, it's like it's very hard to after that you realize yeah the kid's like this dog's got lots of scars and joe's like yeah <laughs> you know but he's still breathing or something right and you're like damn he's been dog fighting this dog as well it's like this isn't like a good guy really but the movie tricks you you know it gets you this is the movie where everybody has all those sides where the abusive murderous uh, father of the kid has this fun dance scene with the kid. And Cage, who becomes more of a father to this kid in how long does it take place? A couple weeks? A month or two? He becomes more of a father to this kid in that time and yet does some terrible things. It, again, it's part of why probably this movie didn't find a wider audience or, or at least people didn't have enough faith in it that it could find another, uh, a wider audience to, to really get it out there. Uh, but it's something that, that I find so much more rewarding as a movie. Yeah, one little detail you can just sort of piece together they don't make a big deal of it all is that he has like an ex-wife in town and like a new grandchild was born and you it's like he lives in the same town as his estranged family you know and it's just like this little thing that comes along that gives him another level that you know it's not necessarily necessary but i'm glad it's there and it ends up meaning something more you know it ends up meaning oh okay like he's not just looking after this kid because he sees him getting beat up in fact that's quite the opposite. Right. He sees this kid get beat up and does nothing about it, you know? And you realize it ends up being more about, like, it's a second... He's trying to give this kid a second chance, and that's giving him sort of a second chance at being part of being a father, maybe, you know? You you can start sort of putting the pieces of him together in your head. I mean, even though Cage does some terrible things, I think the advice that he's giving is exactly the advice that Gary needs to hear. That I mean, at the end of the movie... When, like, the, the toughest scene in the movie where Gary's dad brings Gary's younger daughter, who must be, what, like, 10 or 12, maybe? Then brings her out to the field and has the guy, I guess, Scarface, right? Or the Willie Russell or whatever his name is. He's got those two guys pay him 30 bucks to go at her. Yeah. And it's just, it's awful. Their whole defense is that, you know, in a couple years, she's going to be doing this anyway. And I feel like you get the sense, the whole vibe from this town that these kids are really never going to leave. Like, they're never going to grow up and leave. They don't really have the opportunities. Like, they don't have the education or the financial opportunities to really do anything big with their life. Mm-hmm. And so Cage, I guess, I feel like Cage, as Joe, is the same kind of guy that he's been in this town all his life. And maybe there was a guy like Joe when he was Gary's age. But he's giving Gary the advice to sort of help him get strong and sort of help him through this world, giving him a truck, 
teaching him about girls, sort of, you know, letting him drink beer. Like, it's not necessarily the best advice, but it's kind of the best advice for the situation or for the world that they're building. Yeah, this is a movie where people earning a living is shown to us, like how they make their money. You know, so many movies, it's just sort of maybe because we want to escape or because it just takes too much time or it's not very interesting. It's alighted. And this is a movie that's, that gets into how people really live, how people live paycheck to paycheck, how people live job to job and town to town. And, you know, they treat it with dignity without making it sort of like noble savagery in a way that I think is that is really impressive. But And you're totally right. There's a, a Cage has this great sort of voiceover while Gary's getting his life together. And it's just it's just fantastic. And it, it's, it's maybe not, you know, quote unquote, the best advice. Like, should he be giving this kid beers and letting him drive before he has the license and all stuff well probably not but that's exactly what this kid needs in the in this real world in order to survive and in order to break free and in order to you know he can save this kid you know whether whether or not he's sort of redeeming himself as a father or as a man or himself as a as a younger person or whatever no matter what what he's trying to do is to save this kid and it's sort of heartbreaking and beautiful and hopeful all at the same time yeah, and I think, you know, it's that hope that kind of makes it the tragedy, right? In a lot of ways, I feel, which is good. That makes it the better movie, too. That it shows that hope. Like you said, it's not just dark, 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 you know? Like, there's that actual light there that if you could just reach it, then you're good. But in a lot of ways, that's that's a lot sadder than dark all the time, you know? Right. Because, right. yeah, you're really being pulled in a bunch of different directions, and... And yeah, and I really feel like Cage more than anything in this film. He he's just trying to be the friend, right? Like he says, like you know, I guess that's even better sometimes than having a parent, you know, because a friend doesn't ha- he can give you beer, right? In ways he could right, be a right, little right. less responsible. And you're right, it's great how he's just trying to treat the kid like he sees him, right? I think that's what he says at some point, something like he, he just needs him to know that someone else knows he's there or something like he exists. Because right. this kid is living in squalor, right? Like, this is right. real. They're really out in the way back woods in this movie. Like, uh, this comes up a lot in the David Gordon Green films, too, is just children growing up in this type of, you know, basically like these condemned houses or just this such this so distant from a town and just there's just no opportunity for work in a lot of these places and this is actually you know this isn't taking place in the past either like this is happening in 2013 and you know toby you sometimes talk about how places like nebraska might be you know a little behind in the trends and i feel like trends never even reach these part of the woods you know like (laughs) they don't care know or realize who's the top 10 recording artist on mtv or any of that kind of stuff it's just not crossing their minds they're just trying to survive it's totally true, and you and you could pluck this movie and 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 drop it in the Great Depression. You could drop it probably in a bunch of other countries. I mean, you could put it in a lot of times and a lot of settings, and it would still work pretty much as it's shot, you know. And I think it's as you guys have said before. One of the reasons Cage is such a great pick for it is that he he that he can work in a lot of different times, you know. That he's in the course of his filmography, he's he's been able to be in in past, present, future, in a lot of different ways, and 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 so there he has that sort of timeless quality that fits this role really well while watching this movie i kept thinking about other cage movies i mean they're not necessarily direct cage connections but he spends a lot of time in a brothel of sorts right Mm -hmm. and he's sort of like it seems like it's not only there for compromising sake but it seems like these are kind of just like friends 
that he's just sort of like friends with the owner. That it's just like a place that he like. This is just a place that he lives. That this is part of the world that he exists in. And it's weird. It's sort of like I guess it's kind of like something. I mean, it reminds me of New Orleans, all the Cage New Orleans movies. But I mean, we also get one of my favorite lines in the entire movie, where Cage, where Cage <laughs> asks the girl, he's like, "Fury, bitch." I mean, I had a cat. Yeah. What's his name? Lucy. What do you feel? I don't know. Fucking dry food. What's your favorite color? Red. Blow me. And then it's just like, what? Like, he wants to be friends, but also, like, it's it's this weird, I don't know, it's just, this is sort of like a, a, a kind of a perfect, in a way, culmination of Cage down south with some seedy underbelly people. Yeah, he, he even winds up in jail, right? I mean, we find out the character did 29 months for assaulting an officer. He even ends up in the tank overnight, I think, just in this movie. There's, like, two scenes where, <laughs> there's that one scene where he, like, slaps the rookie cop who pulls him over for no reason, and he's like, why are you wasting your time on me? Oh, this, like, this guy is explosive, you know? Like, I, I love that, too. It's like, he's got a real problem with authority, and, like, you're going to see it. Like, a lot of times you hear mm-hmm. about characters, like, especially in, like, biker films, like, I got problems with authority, this and that, and, like, you never really see it. They usually beat each other up and stuff, but I just love how here he actually takes it out on the cops, and, like, kind of, he's getting away with it, and it also just kind of goes back to, like, the horrors and stuff. It's like, everybody knows everyone on such a general level because it just seems like there's so few people here like these are everybody and it's like yeah you're gonna be my friend but it's also like blow me or it's like you're also my friend but i gotta arrest you or you know we were just having fun and now i'm coming after you with a shotgun scarface guy was like you know bygones man let's we're gonna be seeing each other a lot right or something like that and yeah it's just really strange that they all exist in this bubble together what i like is that it seems like we don't we only get like one or two scenes between the two of them but it seems seems like one of his closest friends in the town, or at least one of the people in the town that understands him in a situation the most, is, I guess, the sheriff? I just love that, you know, Cage slaps the, slaps the deputy, like you just said. I guess, you know, the deputy, like, calls it in, and the sheriff is just there, and he's just like, you know, I heard what you did, but, like, I get it. He's just, like, that's it. Like, they just, they know. Like, it's just, that's just sort of the world they live in. Like, they're not going to lock him up for that because he's just going to, I don't know. I just, the relationships between characters in this movie are just so great. And, like, they feel real and they feel alien, but also in a way that it makes perfect sense in a small town where there's, I don't know, 150 or 200 people and everybody knows each other. And it's just like, yeah, like, that deputy just wanted to cause some trouble and just needed to slap him around a little bit. Yeah, the two words I kept writing down in my notes were authentic and unsettling. And I think that, that the authentic part comes from the fact that this, these do feel like real people in a real place at a real time. And the unsettling part is that we're not used to seeing real people in real places at real times in movies. And, and in a town where the person who wears the sheriff's badge is not just that uniform, it's an actual person, you know, and that they, he has relationships outside of his office with the people in the town. As in any small town, they're going, they're going to have, you know, they're going to know people and they're going to know who the real bad apples are and who the, the real good apples are despite what they do and maybe try and parse that a little bit. Now that can be used, you know, in negative ways if they're corrupt or if they're, you know, with the power gets to their head or whatever. But in this case, the sheriff is a very conscientious, thoughtful, and like you, I have no doubt he would lock Cage up if, if he really needed to. And like he's not bending the rules just because he likes Cage, but I think he, he senses that he's trying to make it, you know, he's trying to, trying to do right. But through the whole movie, seeing to scene 
I never know when violence is going to break out in this movie. And that's one of the things that keeps it sort of, that keeps a level of suspense, even though, as you say, it's not sort of plot driven, you know, scene to scene to scene. The violence is, it comes out of like left field and it's like almost like a jump scare, like explosive, like in the opening shot, right? Like it's so quiet and it's such a interesting shot because he hangs on it for so long and it's just two guys sitting on the railroad tracks but at the end of it the dad just punches the son as hard as he can then there's a scene where cage is coming out of skinning the deer at his friend's house and they're having a great time talking about making steaks and the guy pulls up and blasts him with a shotgun and it's just like catches you off guard and explosive and yeah it's just i think that helps that work really well and keeps it from feeling cheap or wedged in there and and i also just feel like the desperation of this town is really seeping through too leading to these sort of acts of violence at any moment you know like everybody is really tense and wound up the nation's going through an actual depression sure it's not like the original right not the the first one or anything but michael moore's made documentaries you know 20 years ago about stuff like this right where towns are just drying up and dying and people are desperate and they'll do what they need to i mean it gets to a point where the dad is wandering through town and kills another drunk for his bottle that's sort of really hitting the nail on the head but i mean it's in there because you know this is part of the theme right like this it's the violence from the desperation and you know on top of everything else no i think you're totally right and i i think that the violence that came as kind of jump scares early on is is a great plant for when the father comes and kills the guy for the bottle because that's a scene where you feel like it might turn to violence as it goes right that there the violence is, is played for suspense you see the father eyeing the, the guy as he walks out of the store you you see you see him eyeing the bottle once they're down by the river you see him eyeing the thing he's going to use to beat the guy with it's that one is drawn out and you're like oh my god I know this could get really dark and really violent and I know that because there has been there you know been these shocking moments in the past so i know this movie does violence and that this guy does violence but how is this going to get as dark as i think it is and then it does i mean then it really does and i think that that you know those seeds have been planted by this by this filmmaker so that then he can play this scene for maximum suspense without it feeling like it's a you know quote-unquote movie moment it only happens in a movie but it also only happens in real life that somebody like that would kill another man for half a bottle of wine like it's so insane and like you're right like the they just they drag that scene out because we know the violence is there we know that the director and the movie are willing to go to that level and you realize sort of the consequences and the stakes and you're like you he he can't do this just for this right and then he does it and it fits in the world but it's still like what's shocking about it is not that he does it but i think what he does it for yeah, it's true, which gets back to the desperation that Mike is talking about, which then comes home in, you know, so so this movie, if we, if we follow sort of this theme that Mike has identified of desperation, and then also its own sort of resistance to being the quote-unquote movie version of that, you know, and a movie version of a father-son redemption story, it's trying to, you know, to really earn that story rather than just uh, assert it. And so the, then the, the scene near the end when that we sort of talked about a little bit before, where Gary comes to Kay comes to Joe and says that he's going to go kill his father because his father has, has taken the sister and has gone to do this thing and taken his truck, right? And you can see he's really going to do it. And and you realize in that moment without them saying it that this is maybe a mirror moment that came in Joe's life where he turned to violence. You know, it sent him down the path where he is now as an ex-con who can't control himself and sicks his dogs on other dogs and beats up rookie officers and all this stuff. And then in that moment he decides to sort of take on the, the, the sins so this kid 
doesn't have to. And that moment between them where, where the kid's saying, I could kill him just as good as you can, you could. And where Cage grabs him and pulls him into this hug and he says to him, I know you could. I know you could. And it's such a great, I mean, I, I get chills just thinking about it now. And I'm telling you, I uh, several sobs erupted spontaneously from me as I watched that moment. To me, it felt so earned. And it wasn't, he wasn't saying explicitly, I love you, right? It wasn't that scene. It was the scene where he says, as you were saying, Joey, he sees him as a man. He sees him as a person. He sees him as, as a human being. It says, I, and gives him that dignity. I know you could. I know you could do this thing. And then what's unsaid, but what becomes explicit as it goes is, but I'm going to do this for you so that you can escape the fate that I have had or have a chance to. The fact that the movie is able to come to a moment of catharsis like that without, you know, overly telegraphing sort of where it's going. I mean, you have some idea this might be where the movie lands, but for me, it lands so sort of skillfully and subtly at that moment, and it just has such such a big impact that I don't think you would get if this was eight out of ten versions of the, of the sort of ex-con becomes a father to the kid story. That is a great moment between him and the kid. Like, that to me is like the goodwill hunting moment. You know, that there is so earned on multiple levels. Like, we've seen this kid beat the shit out of someone twice his size, twice his age, right? Like, on the bridge, you know? He's like, don't talk about my sister. And boom, bam, the guy's on the ground. <laughs> and all he could say <laughs> is, I went through a windshield at 4 a.m. and survived. And it's like, this kid just whooped your ass. You know, the kid is tough. He's going to, you know, he's tougher than a lot of the men. He's more of a man. So, yeah, I believe every word coming out of his mouth you know at that moment it's great everything is and i believe everything cage is saying too throughout this whole movie i almost felt like without even saying anything i just got this sense that the character of joe was being sort of like pulled toward his destiny or something and i know that might sound kind of corny or strange or something but i don't know i just get like these weird cerebral sort of vibe from this like we mentioned earlier sort of how it's like got these terrence malick sort of moments where it just sort of drifts off into like a mind space you know where you just could get lost in your head about the film and i just got the sense like the character was going to meet his destiny one way or the other by the end of this and boy does he really step up it's a lot about like step up you know stepping up to do the right thing and and i think that is causing like this new level of frustration for his character too and that he finally acts upon it is is just great you know i mean i'm just so glad it it just plays out very well it doesn't get cliche even though it veers into that territory because it has to we get into this very dark situation like you said where these guys are ganging up on the daughter and the sister and he goes there ready to stop the situation and and you know the best you could do is shoot it really well and 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 attic act it the best you can but because the rest of this movie has done so much so well like they really don't even have to try here it just they just have to shoot it like play it out and and it just works really well and I think that after, like, what it also does really well is that they, after they have this perfect scene that they just, like you said, let it play out on the bridge, we get the perfect little coda. Uh, we get Gary, we get Ty Sheridan basically doing the same kind of job, except it's the complete opposite, right? Like, where he was once killing trees, yes. now he's planting trees. Yes. In a worse movie, you'd be like, oh, like, that's sort of corny <laughs> or whatever. But, like, yeah. here it just sort of works. Yeah. He sort of went through the dark period of his life, and now that these guys are dead... Now that his father knows or whatever, you know, his father's gone too, he and his sister are safe, that this is sort of a fresh start, this is like a brand new beginning for them, and now it's not about death and sort of destruction and decay anymore, but about life and about birth and about rebirth. And it's just, it's this great little moment, now that he knew Joe, he is sort of in with this town. It seems like, I mean, I, I'm sure that he could have worked for that guy regardless, 
But their conversations like, oh, you knew Joe? He's like, yeah, Joe always treated me well. Joe was this fixture in this town, and now Gary's going to be this fixture in this town. It's just like a perfect little ending. The other thing that's great about that moment is that uh, Mike's already alluded to the opening shot, which starts as an over-the-shoulder of, of the father. It's over Gary's shoulder as Gary's talking to the father. Uh, the father's not saying anything. He's just smoking and listening to the kid. The kid's like, you can't keep screwing up like this. You know, you're getting us in trouble. And it's all your fault. I do the best I can. And, and then the kid, the, the dad clobbers him. And then in the same shot, the dad gets up and walks up this hill and gets the, the crap beat out of him by this guy with what looks like another kid standing there with a rifle. It's all played in silhouette. In, in a long shot this bit at the end with the tree farm is is the same shot except that it's over the the tree farmer's shoulder at gary and then we fall and then as 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 he's talking to gary and sort of offering him this job and then we it pans as as they walk out and start planting trees you know it's not only a mirror of the of the job which is which is such a great little grace note as you say joey but it also sort of brings us full circle to the shot at the beginning of the movie i mean i think that just is why this is such a great film, right? Because it knows what it's doing like that. It sets up like these thematic rules and sticks to them. And it just has the confidence in itself to know what it's doing, not really overextend in ways, you know, not trying to please everybody territory, right? It just really wants to be true to telling this story. In a way, I don't feel you could have if you had someone maybe like Pacino playing the drunk dad or something, you know, if you were casting this film up for Hollywood, you just couldn't get away with these artistic flourishes and stuff and you need that for this for it to work as well as it does and i'm just i it's it's a shame but in a way i'm like i'm glad it's this small little independent gem hasn't been sort of wasn't tainted in the making they always say that the mark of a great movie is that the actor embodies the role so much that you lose sight of the actor and i feel like what's great about this movie is that like you don't have like it wouldn't work like you're saying with Pacino there, because I feel like at this point, Pacino is just Pacino. Like, you're always going to see him. You're able to lose yourself in this character because he is just a guy. Like, he's basically just playing, playing himself. This is, I think, Ty Sheridan's third movie, I think, so people didn't really know him. Cage is so, like we've been talking about all episodes, so effortless throughout the entire film. It's hard to not lose yourself in it, right? Mm. It's so true. And, and and the Malick comparison is an apt one, not just because of the sort of lyrical qualities of the film. I mean, they're, they're, they're friends, the, those two filmmakers. Um, Malick, I think, was the executive producer on Undertow, which is a movie, if you have not seen, that's a movie you should really watch. <laughs> Starring um, Josh Lucas from Stolen, former Cage yeah. Club alumni. <laughs> hey, there we go. Yeah, and Jamie Bell. Uh, anyway, there he, he cites him as a real uh, source of inspiration, and they're, and they're both film filmmakers. Who, you know, the word maverick gets thrown a lot. Apparently, uh, mostly from filmmakers that, that are from Texas, um, <laughs> like those two, and uh, you know, Linklater. But but I think it's really true that how much more money, how many more days could he have shot if he had had Pacino in that role or whoever? You know, pick your um, Robert Duvall, whoever. But it just it would it, it would really lose something, I think, and. and and, and the, the ability to sort of, as you say, Mike, he's really taking care. You know, he's taking care to tell this story. And that, that really comes through from the, from the casting to the writing to allowing the actors to improvise things to these little, you know, very sort of subtle touches that, that, that bring the symmetry to it, that make it feel like a, like a true tragedy in the, in, the, in the true sense at the end when Joe sort of sacrifices himself for this kid. Uh, this is a movie I will definitely watch again. One other thing I wanted to point out that I realized while you were talking about him and Terrence Malick, and I love that he cites him as like a source of inspiration or a mentor or whatever, 
is that Ty Sheridan's first movie was The Tree yes. of Life. Right, right. So maybe, yes, maybe he either saw him in there, or he was recommended to it, or whatever. That's exactly. Uh, so yes, I'm sorry. Yes, yes. <laughs> that's exactly <laughs> what happened. That's exactly what happened. Yes, 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 yes. And what's also great is that Ty Sheridan, like I mean, these movies have been fairly big. At least if you're into the indie, the art house scene, Ty Sheridan's really going to hit the big time this year. Because he's playing Cyclops in X Men Apocalypse. Really? So I mean, he's going to oh. be propelled into like another stratosphere. I mean, I don't want to say that I only want to see him do small movies. I'd like to see him milk his acting talent for all it's worth, and that means becoming like starring in blockbusters, like Cage did for Face Off and Con Air. Like that's great. But I would rather see that as sort of the aberration instead of the norm. Do great movies, whether they're small or big. Like just aside from Scout's Guide to the Apo- to the Zombie Apocalypse which came out last year and is pretty bad. I don't think he's ever been necessarily in a bad movie. I mean, he's only been in, I think, like 10 or so things. So, I mean, he's had a pretty good track record so far. I just want to see him keep making good choices. Well, let's not forget that, you know, we had, we've had we had Michael Fassbender and James McAvoy in X-Men movies. You know, like it's, they, they, are, they, have, they have learned to, to dig from a deep well of talent. And I, I think that – I think you're totally right. And maybe what this is too is that's the sort of thing that will allow him, you know, eventually to have the clout to be able to get a movie like Joe made when he is Cage's age, you know, like to be able to sort of to, to play both sides of the fence economically in, in Hollywood. Uh, and I think that that would be if – he, if he can find a way to do that, I, and great. I will watch him in – in maybe not a terrible movie, but in, in some pretty bad movies. I think I would watch Ty Sheridan do a lot. That comes to kind of a shock to me. I didn't know. I'm, I mean, I'm actually looking forward. I like the X-Men movies. You know, they're all pretty good. And, you know, come to think of it, you know, even going back, they had Sir Ian McKellen and Sir yes. Patrick Stewart to kick <laughs> yeah. off those franchises. So I suppose if you're going to pick a blockbuster, it could be a lot worse than one with co-starring Jennifer Lawrence, you know? I wouldn't mind going to work with her every day. Yeah, big <laughs> things on the horizon for this kid. Well-deserved, too. He almost, almost stole the film from Cage. <laughs> almost. <laughs> is there anything else that we want to talk about? Any major themes that we didn't cover? I mean, this is a shorter episode, and usually our shorter episodes are the animated ones, or ones where there's not much to talk about. I feel like there's a lot to talk about here, but I feel like we've covered a lot of it. This is definitely a movie that you should just go see, you should go enjoy. You know, like Tobin, bring a box of tissues and cry <laughs> your face off toward the middle and the end. Is there anything else that you guys want to talk about that we haven't covered yet? Okay, two things if I'm looking back over my notes. One is that the, the lighting in this movie was really interesting to me. Not only does the film subject matter get dark, but the film itself gets pretty dark. Yes. Um, yes. Literally, in a way that, again, feels very authentic and unsettling in this movie. And not, not just things that take place at night, but even sometimes during the day, there'll be scenes where you're sort of squinting you're not quite sure if it's, it feels underexposed in a way and it gets to, it adds to the sense of desperation and the idea of your bill hasn't been paid maybe you don't have enough light bulbs in your house whatever it is like that adds such a sort of authentic quality to the film the other thing is that if I if there's one thing I didn't if I have to knock the movie for one thing for me as the film went along the score got in the way a little bit sometimes like there were moments uh, when it felt like some real emotion was being earned and then i don't know i felt sometimes that the score kind of nudged me a little bit in a way that uh, that the movie wasn't trying to i don't did you guys have that experience at all i don't think so not necessarily i really liked the score i mean i didn't maybe i was watching it differently because i've already seen it and maybe i mean i didn't really remember everything i remember like the major beats and sort of the major events i was just sort of re-watching it to enjoy it 
I wasn't put off by the score, but maybe Mike as a, a fellow first-time viewer with Tobin, you had a different experience? It didn't throw me off either, necessarily, but, you know, I did watch three other <laughs> David Gordon Green films, you know, <laughs> uh, George Washington, All the Real Girls, and Undertow. You know, I think George Washington, aside from the, like, George Washington was my favorite, but throughout all of them, there was trouble with the music that I did notice from those films, especially Undertow. I love the first act of that, but then when uh-huh. the, the music sort of turned it a little cliche feeling for yes. me, it may, you know what I'm saying? But it wins me back yes. by the end of that film. And yes, so yes, maybe yes. having just watched that, I was pleased with what he was doing here with the music. It didn't really stand out too harsh for me. Uh, maybe, if anything, I even think he could have gone a little more with the... But I'm glad he didn't. I mean, from what I've heard, it sounded fine to me in this case. Not just me then. Just me then. I, I retract. I retract. I love this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, anything else that we didn't cover that you wanted to make sure we talked about? Just, uh, I know Tobin mentioned you watched some behind the scenes, so you might be privy to this, but Joy, I don't know if you're aware that this was actually a novel, this movie. I didn't know that until after watching it. Um, I saw that in the credits and I got yeah. really excited. Yeah, and the other cool thing is that uh, David Gordon Green's film professor, his first year directing a teacher, actually wrote the screenplay of the book. He adapted the screenplay and David Gordon Green sort of adapted the screenplay into this movie. You know, like They had the script, but he said they went off script like a lot and they tried to work in as much improv as possible and he really fed off the actors to try and come up with you know their own lines and things like that so just a really good you know i haven't read the book but what i presume to be a really good way to do an adaptation like this feels like knowing it was a book i can see that now watching the film and i'm like yes this is how you do it like every time you think there should be a voiceover explaining what's going on in the character's head because it's on the page don't do that it will come across (laughs) if you're a good enough filmmaker yeah i feel like he pulled it off here so what you're saying is that we should find a book have Tobin write a screenplay based on that book, <laughs> and then we should make a movie based on that screenplay? Yes, exactly. starring Nicolas Cage. Right? Starring Nicolas Cage. Absolutely. Yeah. What if we adapt Lindsay Gibbs' National Treasure Nicolas Cage into a film? Tobin, you think you write a screenplay based on that I book? I love it. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do the Cage biopic. I love it. <laughs> I'll always step in to play Cage if we can't afford him, guys. Oh, boy. <laughs> I'll work on my impression. Well, apparently, I want to offer an apology to Christian Larson, who did an impression of Cage on our Seeking Justice episode. And I've heard from multiple people that it wasn't that bad. (laughs) So, Larson, this is my official apology to you. If Mike is unable to step into the role, you are our second alternate. So Mike is first alternate. Larson, you are second alternate. You can step into the Cage role should the first two fall out. That one, I guess, whatever impression that I don't even remember. (laughs) It sounded like Burt Reynolds, but... It was good enough to cast you as the second alternate to Nicolas Cage in our movie, so consider this your official public apology. Anything else either of you want to say about Joe, or you think we're pretty much good on this movie? Thumbs up. Four stars. (laughs) Everybody should see this movie. Yeah, I definitely recommend this film. Don't go and watch, like, The Sitter or, you know, those, <laughs> his comedies. Like, definitely check out his dramas. Uh, I don't really, I have nothing against those films. It's just, like, I feel like this might represent him more as a filmmaker and as an artist. And I think, you know, he deserves that due respect. And I think you should see this film. One thing that I do want to make sure that we don't, we don't, I don't want to, totally discredit his stoner comedies. Danny McBride, who I guess he probably met on the side of Your Highness, was a producer on this oh, movie. He's in All the Real Girls. 
they have a relationship there, so I'm glad that we can't discredit all of David Gordon Green's comedies and the, the pot movies, because something good came of that, that one of the stars of those movies put his money on the table, made sure that this movie happened. So thank you, Danny McBride. Thank you, Stoner Comedies. Just to make sure that I was being clear, I don't think that those are bad movies. I, they're just not my taste. I just don't watch a lot of them. But as you say, I'm so glad that he's that he because I think they have allowed him have allowed David Gordon Green the clout to continue making movies like Joe. So whatever he has to do in order to do this, I think he should. And I agree. So thank you very much, Tobin Addington, for joining us once more. You will be back one more time, I believe before our current run of Cage Club episodes finishes up. You'll be back in a couple episodes for Left Behind. So it's sort of a delicious Joe sandwich with <laughs> terrible, terrible bread on either side. A Joey-o. A jo- Joey-o? Is like an Oreo? I don't like that. I'm going to leave it in there. So, so, Tobin, thank you for joining us and hearing Mike's weird analogy. <laughs> I love it. I, I can't wait to talk to you again, even if it has to be about being left behind. So for all things Cage, you can go to cageclub.me. You can read our past reviews, find past podcasts, follow us on Twitter, rate, review, subscribe on iTunes. All things Cage at cageclub.me. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And that's Tobin Addington, and we'll see you next time on Cage Club. Mm